Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians uh, 13. We're going to be looking at the first three verses. We are uh, finally getting into um, what is known as the love chapter in 1 Corinthians. And I uh, don't totally know yet how, um, how I'm going to break down this chapter, but um, we're going to do the first three verses today and kind of slowly work our way uh, through this chapter. So let's begin uh, with a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for the worship service, for the song, for the singing, for all that you do to provide for our needs. We thank you for the sufficiency that's available in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. We thank you for um, your redemption that you give freely and without cost to us. We pray that if there be any who do not know Christ as Savior, that you would cause them to repent and believe in you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Your uh, ambitions reveal a lot about your character. What is it that you aspire to? What is it that you dream about? Who do you want to recognize your talents? Who do you want to see you? The ambitions of the Corinthian Christians revealed a lot about their character. They were obsessed, of course, as you know, with the flashy, showy spiritual gifts. For them, tongues was the envy of every church member. They wanted something to uh, assert their importance and their value and their contribution and for people to notice them. Of course, we could say that we have the same problem today. We have ambitions that are not lined up with God's Word. We have aspirations that run counter to that which we ought. We have aspirations also, in many ways, like the Corinthians, to be known by and valued by the world. We fall into the same age-old trap. We, too, like our parents and our grandparents, find ourselves parading around Vanity Fair, looking for someone to notice us somewhere. Some lust after recognition. You know, perhaps this is the, the lust after a famous celebrity noticing you and, you know, taking that picture with you and posting it all over the place. Uh, perhaps a lust after your 30 seconds of social media fame or a desire after important people wanting your advice. Some strive after eloquence and rhetoric and debate. Uh, they desire to be witty, to be crafty, to be charismatic, or to issue one-liners that, you know, demolish a person's worldview in just, you know, one statement, like destroy them. Some want to preach with the eloquence of perhaps a Steve Lawson or a Vody Bauckham. We aspire to greatness. We aspire to recognition. We aspire to be known. We aspire to ride the wave of secular culture and secular values. We live in a celebrity-driven culture. And just like 1 Corinthians 13 demolishes Corinthian pride, I believe that it will likewise demolish American pride. How many of us aspire to live a life that is described to us in 1 Timothy 2 
in verse 2, where in that verse we simply read that we are to lead a quiet and peaceful life. How many aspire to that kind of life? How many of us desire to live and die in anonymity? Nobody important knows us. Nobody recognizes us. Nobody remembers where our grave, our tombstone is located. How many of us desire simply to live faithful lives? How many of us simply want to provide for our families and to care for those that we love? How many of us want that? Or do we interpret or do we commit the sin of interpreting God's greatest blessings to us as curses, as restraints, as preventing us from living full lives? How many of us want to be ordinary, plotters, faithful, respectful, and to simply persevere? How many of us long after that kind of a life? And how many of us, to bring this back to the passage in front of us, want to be known by our love for others? That that would be the hallmark of our lives as Christians. For a society that talks as much as it does today about love, I would submit to us that our current culture is one of the most loveless societies ever to exist. Marriage means nothing to anybody anymore in our country. Commitment means nothing to anybody. Only unlimited, unrestrained autonomy. I am my own God. I will do what I want, when I want, with who I want to do it with, and no one will tell me what to do. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous or the infamous love chapter. Some Christians would say that this chapter is the greatest thing that Paul has ever written. Paul's written some pretty good stuff. Um, and maybe 1 Corinthians 13 is that. Uh, Paul has written some good things on God's love toward us through redemption. Uh, but regardless of how you want to rank this, I don't know that we ought to, but regardless of how you want to do that, it is something that is incredibly important and crucial for us to understand as believers in Christ. As we begin today, there are a couple of observations that I wish to make, and I apologize ahead of time for just a slightly longer introduction than normal, but I do want to work through this chapter 13 just bit by bit and kind of set the stage here for us a little bit um, with regard to what it means to love as Christians. And so there are a couple of observations that I would like to make. Observation number one is this. Do you remember how we said that 1 Corinthians 12 through the end of 1 Corinthians 14 is one unit, is one section? And this section is all about what? Spiritual gifts. And how we think through those and how we interact with our spiritual gifts in the context of the local church and, and how we're to view the importance of them and so on and so forth and all this kind of stuff. 1 Corinthians 13, this is the first observation, is not Paul going down a rabbit trail and all of a sudden he's talking about spiritual gifts 
and then he gets distracted, and then he goes back to spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13 is about spiritual gifts, and it is about the motivation that we are to have while exercising spiritual gifts. That's the context that 1 Corinthians 13 uh, is, is found in. You cannot understand the proper use of spiritual gifts in the church if you don't know what love is. If you have a church that is a loveless church, and yet they are exercising their spiritual gifts, it is going to be a chaotic and miserable church. Okay? And so that's the first observation. This is in context. And second, I want to start off with a working definition of love. Um, this is really hard for some. What is love? For something as simple and straightforward as love, there are a lot of definitions out there. And uh, I think that defining love is perhaps more challenging than we realize. Let's explore this for a minute as, as we get into how I'm going to define love here. The world tends to view love almost exclusively in terms of emotion. The world's concept, I'm broad brush stroking here a little bit, okay? The, the, the world and its idea of love, it is very transitory, temporary, shallow, fleeting. It's a vapor. There's no commitment and there's no sacrifice, okay? Um, It's so shallow that we've gotten past the point of marriage and divorce to let's just not get married at all. (laughs) And then as we fall in and out of love, it's just easier to kind of just navigate through all of this kind of stuff, okay? Um, So the world's view of love is very shallow. Now, um, on the other hand, Christians for the last couple of generations at least, have had a tendency to define love. Um, I'm I'm, I'm going to make the charge here, okay? A little bit too much one-dimensional, if I can say it that way, as understanding love only exclusively in terms of sacrifice and commitment. Okay, to give you an example of this, one pastor defines love this way. It is not a feeling, but a determined act of will. Okay, this is pretty popular to understand love this way. Um, and so there is a little bit of a predicament. As we are trying to define what love is, what does it mean to love my neighbor, should we understand love to be um, a feeling only an emotion, something that I feel in my soul and my heart? Or should we understand love to be no emotion, but just the commitment and the sacrifice? And I would say, why not both? Why why can't love comprise both elements? Uh, I'm going to put up here how Jonathan Edwards defined it and excuse the fact that he wrote this, uh, what, 300 years ago or so, and uh, the English is a little bit removed from where it is today. 
the affections, or you could say love, are no other than the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and the will of the soul. What in the world does that mean? You have not helped us, John. Um, What he's saying is that the affections or love is comprised of the inclinations of my soul, that is to say the desires of my soul, what I want, what I like, my emotion perhaps, and the will of the soul, my commitment, my actions, what I do. Okay, Edwards is saying, to say what we just said, why not both? (laughs) Uh, He goes on to say this, the will and the affections of the soul are not two faculties. The affections are not essentially distinct from the will. Okay, what is he saying there? Edwards is saying that it's not really helpful to divorce these from one another and to talk about love in terms of only the affections of the soul, the delights of the soul, the desires of the soul, and then the will is over here. What Edwards is arguing is that they have overlap, a lot of overlap, and that you can't really divorce these from one another. Love is, it is correct to say that love is the determination of the will. Right? If, if love did not include the determination of the will, you're making conscious choices of commitment, then every married couple should get a divorce the f- moment they first argue with each other. Because there's no, if, if, there's, if love is not determination, and love is not commitment, and love is not sacrifice, then just, just everyone would be divorced on day one, I think. <laughs> right? There, there is a determination of the will that goes into love, okay? Uh, love says, even though I don't feel like liking you, loving you right now, I will anyway. I will choose to set my love upon you, even though I don't feel like it at this moment, okay? There is determination. There is commitment of the will. If love was not this, If love was not a determination of the will or a commitment or a choice, then how could God love us? Does anyone want to offer anything lovely about themselves that God... (laughs) Okay, nobody. Okay. You're theologically correct there. Okay. We have nothing lovely about ourselves to offer the Lord. And when when he found us, we were wallowing in our own sin. Okay? So... The love of God, and a lot of times we talk about this in terms of agape love, and this is true, agape love or the love of God toward us, it is commitment. It is a choice. It is setting my love upon you. On the other hand, love is also affection. It is delight. It is emotion, right? Does anybody want to have someone else love them? only in terms of raw commitment and no affection. Does anyone want your spouse to love you that way? Anyone? (laughs) How else could you explain 1 Peter 1, verse 22, that says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, 
for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Not robotically. There is an emotional component to this. In other words, have affection towards one another. Delight in one another. So I would suggest to us that we need both of these elements. Our definition of love is going to be from Jonathan Edwards. And you could find, I'm sure, lots of other good ones out there. But we'll simply say, stealing from him, that love is the inclination and will of the soul. Or if you want to make it easy, it's both. It's both the affection and it is the commitment to one another. Uh, This takes into consideration both aspects so that loving your brother does not mean that you merely endure your brother. I'm committed to you. I am sacrificing for you. I am choosing to love you, but I can't stand you. (laughs) That's, That's not what it is. It also means that you are inclined toward him. It's your affections. Your good deeds for and toward your brother come from desire, from delight, and from affection. And so in light of these things, let's go ahead and read uh, the passage in front of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And so we will look at this section of text and really three divide into three sections, and that is, without love, I produce nothing. Without love, I am nothing. And without love, I gain nothing. Let's reread verse 1 here, which says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul begins his first conditional statement here in verse 1, where he says, If this without that, then this. And this is the format that he's going to follow. He picks on tongues, most likely because this is what they prize more than anything else. He picks kind of the top thing. This is what you desire more than anything else. Okay, if you could have the best of the best of the best of the best, and you didn't have love, it would be or produce nothing. And of course, he is speaking through hyperbole here because he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and yet have not love. In other words, he's saying tongues, and we've seen this as we've looked the last couple weeks, tongues in the New Testament is where you have the ability to speak a language that you've never studied before so that you are able to preach the gospel in that language. Okay, So in the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, You see this gift being given to the church, and the gospel is spreading, and God gives the gift of tongues so that people who never studied these other languages could preach the gospel in those languages, and now the the pace at which the gospel spreads is, is phenomenal. Okay, Tongues is not speaking, as we said last time, gibberish, and tongues would not be any sort of a mysterious, 
angelic tongue. There's no other passage in Scripture that would give us that indication. So Paul is speaking in hyperbole here, and he's saying, even if you could speak in an angelic tongue, if it were somehow possible to go to that level, and you were to do that without love, it would produce nothing. We can make, of course, a number of appropriate applications for ourselves, and we can take what we opened up with today with regard to our different ambitions and things that we desire. You could say, if I can preach with the eloquence of so-and-so, but have not love, I am nothing. If I can beat anybody in a debate, but have not love, I am nothing. If I can rally people to good causes, but have not love, I am nothing. If I can stand on street corners in protest of all the right causes, but have not love, I am nothing. The point is obvious. As Christians, we are characterized not only by our giftedness, but by our love. Giftedness without love produces nothing of lasting value for us. Christians must be characterized by our love for one another. In fact, Jesus himself says that the one identifiable character trait of Christians is their mutual love for one another. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And you want to say, what, 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 is, what is kind of the billboard, so to speak? What, what, what is the sign to other people that you are a Christian? And he, he could have said, by your great rhetoric, he could have said by your persuasive skills, he could have said by your, your, your wonderful debate and, and whatever, and your knowledge and this and that, he said, no, other people are going to know that you're Christian because of the way that you love people. That's kind of the hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. It is telling here that Jesus does not say, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have a theology degree. Or if you have persuasive debate skills, or if you are highly gifted, or if you speak in tongues, or if you perform miracles. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you perform miracles. He doesn't say that. He says, by your love for one another. Jesus says that people will know that you are Christians by your love. Now, the corollary is also true and scary. Unbelievers don't know that we're Christians if we don't love. One of the worst things, one of the worst things that an unbeliever can ever say about a Christian is this. Oh, I had no idea he was a Christian. (laughs) I had no idea. John MacArthur says, It is easier to be orthodox than to be loving, and easier to be active in church work than to be loving. He then goes on to say this, Right theology is no substitute for love. Religious works are no substitute for love. Nothing substitutes for love. I'll give you just maybe a little illustration of this. Imagine that you were to go down to the old jail restaurant in Worcester. Okay, um, and you were to order a very expensive steak dinner. I mean, what other kinds of dinners are available there than expensive steak dinners at the old jail, right? And you were to go down there, and you were to order this steak dinner, 
and the waitress comes out and brings this wonderful steak dinner to you in a brown paper bag as if it was coming from a fast food restaurant and is walking over to you and just kind of throws it over at you at the table and knocks your drink down and all this kind of stuff. What would you think about that? That is what it is like to preach the gospel without love. The message is good. The content is good. The steak is good. But the delivery does not match the message. You don't deliver that kind of food that way. Okay? This is why Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 says this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him which is the head into Christ. Speaking what? The truth in love. It's both. It's truth and love. Without love, we are like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Just white noise. You produce nothing of value. That's the first point. Second point is found in verse 2. Without love, I produce nothing. Verse 1. Verse 2. Without love, I am nothing. And we read in verse 2 this. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. He lists four things that do not add any value to my life if I have no love. They are, number one, prophetic powers, number two, understanding mysteries, number three, understanding knowledge, and number four, all faith. This is talking about someone who is incredibly knowledgeable about the word. Um, sometimes there is a little bit of a stereotypical view, and, and this is sometimes the case, sometimes not the case, but sometimes even at a seminary, you might have a professor who is brilliant, who, who can exegete flawlessly, and who, who, who knows the, the Greek and the Hebrew like the back of his hand, and yet you walk up to that professor and try to have a conversation, and you can say, these things don't go together. Something is not matching here. This is also, when he talks about faith here, talking about someone who perhaps has more faith in God in their left pinky than you have in your entire body. I mean, this person has an incredible amount of faith. I would say that people with the gift of discernment could fall into this category here. Imagine someone who is incredibly discerning. Perhaps they run a discernment blog. If that is me, without love, I am nothing. You, 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 can, you can flag all of the false teachers miles before anyone else does. You, you, you can articulate what is wrong with their theology way ahead of time. And you could be the first one on the front lines fighting that battle before anyone else is there. And Paul says, if you don't have love, then you're nothing. This is the exact point that Paul made earlier in this book in chapter 8 verse 1 now concerning food offered to idols we know that all of us possess knowledge this knowledge puffs up but love builds up james makes a similar point he says you believe that god is one you do well even the demons believe in shudder you think you've got good theology the demons have good theology too 
fact, I think demons are better theologians than any of us. <laughs> They've been around a lot longer. They understand things. They're not regenerated. They have knowledge, but they don't have redeeming faith in God. Okay? And they certainly don't love. If I can discern false teaching but have not love, I am nothing. That's point number two. Point number three. Without love, I gain nothing. He says in verse three this, If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. I would suggest that this may be the most shocking of the three verses so far. I mean, any time we are given a... I mean, think about listening to a sermon where you were given an illustration of someone who went off to be a missionary and gave up literally everything. People have given away their life savings and their fortunes. People have gone from American wealth to poverty and other third world nations to simply preach the gospel. Going over into those other countries has even given them incredible sicknesses, illnesses, and health issues, many times for them bringing an early death. And sometimes we hear these stories and we... we uh, celebrate, and I think there is a good aspect of celebrating uh, these kinds of things and lauding people for their sacrifices that were done with good motivations. And yet we begin to picture this is what love looks like. And yet he says, you can even do all of this and do it without having love. I think this one is challenging to us because as we opened up today, as Christians, sometimes we think this is what love is only. Love is sacrifice. And love is certainly sacrifice as a component of it. But we think sacrifice equals love, love equals sacrifice, and that's it to the equation. And so verse 3 forces us to go back and to evaluate what we understand love to be. I could give away my life savings to the poor, but I could do that without love. I could even deliver my body up to be burned and suffer a martyr's death. I could be burned at the stake and do that in a loveless way. Right? You could have bad motivations, right? Jesus gave us an example of this. And the example he gave to us is what it looks like to sacrifice for the wrong reasons. And he says in Matthew 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Has anybody here ever sacrificed anything for Christianity, for the gospel? for truth, for righteousness, big or small. Don't ever made any sacrifice at all, okay? I'm guessing hopefully all of us have to some degree. Have any of you made a sacrifice and thought, I hope somebody notices this? Okay, that's done without love. 
That's done because you think you're valuable and important. And that's a wrong motivation. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. You see, we can do, we can give some of, maybe you've worked it out, maybe you've worked it out in your head really well, okay? I won't announce it. I won't announce my sacrifice, but hopefully somebody else will notice it and they'll announce it for me. And then I'll sit back, oh no, no, there's nothing really. <laughs> no one's ever thought that way? No, nobody's ever thought that way? Okay. I guess I'm the only one. <laughs> we can be motivated through sinful motivations. Sacrifice can be self-serving. You can feed the poor without love for the poor. You could feed the poor because you want your, your picture in the paper. And yet we read this in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Wait a second. Which is it then? He just said, you know, sacrifice without love is nothing. And now we read in John 15 that the greatest display of love is sacrifice. So which one is it? Well, it's simply this. You can sacrifice without love, but you cannot love without sacrifice. Right? You, you can sacrifice and do that without love. We just saw an example of that, okay? You can sacrifice without love. You, you cannot love without sacrifice. If you are genuinely loving from the heart, there is going to be sacrifice coming out of that to some degree or level, correct? There's going to be sacrifice coming out of that. And that's how we would understand both John 15 and 1 Corinthians 13. Sacrifice is not necessarily indicative that you loved, but love will always express itself in sacrifice to some degree at some point. Now, this goes all the way back to the very beginning where we defined love. Some Christians only want to understand love as what? Sacrifice. Raw commitment, raw choice only. Um, and love is that, but love is more than that. It is not only that. And remember, we opened up with a pastor who said, love is not a feeling, but a determined act of will. And I want to say, why not both? Why, why can't both components be present in our love as Christians. The difficulty with this view is that giving away all that I have and delivering up my body to be burned is a determined act of will. Right? If, if, if that definition is true, love is not a feeling but a determined act of will. Giving my body up to be burned is a determined act of will. Choosing to slap someone in the face is a determined act of will. <laughs> right? And so, love has to be more than this. And so the view that love is a choice only, only a choice, is an incomplete view. Love is more. It is much more than this.
All right, let's um, ask, where, 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 where do we go from here? Let's begin to land the plane here a little bit as we kind of think through some of these things and also think through continuing to talk about love over Lord willing next few weeks with defining it, looking at its attributes, so on and so forth. There's something that I uh, think is really crucial to understanding this passage that to help us maybe not leave here confused with this. But let's, let's review first. Here are the, here's the list of things that Paul said, these things are insufficient without love. What did he say? Speaking in the tongues of men, speaking in the tongues of angels, having prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries, understanding all knowledge, having all faith, giving away all that I have, delivering up my body to be burned. All of those things can be done without love, and all of those things, if done without love, means I'm nothing. I produce nothing. I am nothing. But I want to communicate something here that I think is crucial about this text in front of us. And I want to communicate it to, um, to a certain way of thinking. Um, you might call this the, um, uh, the all-you-need-is-love crowd or the doctrine-divides crowd, okay? Paul says, let's just pick one, giving away all that I have. If I do that without love, I'm nothing, okay? Sacrifice, giving away all that you have, and love. There's these two components here. Paul does not say either or. Paul Paul does not say, this is not a put off, put on passage, okay? Paul does not say, put off your sacrifice and put on love, right? He he doesn't say that here. Paul, Paul, Paul Paul is not diminishing the value of sacrifice, you, you can't read this text and say, aha, see, these, these, these people who study doctrine and, and study all this stuff, they just need to get rid of that because all God cares about is love. Well, let's apply what we talked about in the beginning to here. Why not both? Why, why, why not both the sacrifice and the knowledge and the, the seeking to grow in our sanctification and the love, both? Paul does not say, Put off your sound doctrine and your theology and put on love instead. He doesn't say that. Um, This is not love versus the gifts. This is not love versus knowledge. This is not love versus theology. If you think that Paul is disparaging theology or sound doctrine here because he talks about knowledge and understanding... Just go read anything Paul has written. <laughs> anything. <laughs> For like a couple of sentences. I mean, if there's anyone in the Bible who loves doctrine more than anyone else, it is the Apostle Paul. 
And so he's certainly not saying that. He's not diminishing the value of doctrine, of understanding, of faith, or sacrifice. If he was doing that, then why does he have this whole section of 12 through 14 in here about how to use spiritual gifts? He's not saying it's love versus the gifts. He's saying love is the way in which you, it's the environment in which you manifest the gifts. It is the context in which the gifts are made meaningful. It is the context in which my theology is warmed. That's, the, that's what he's saying here. Now, how do we know this? Two reasons. Number one, the text in front of us. Nowhere does he diminish the value of doctrine, understanding, faith, or sacrifice. He never diminishes it anywhere. That's reason number one. Okay, it's an argument from silence. Fine. Here's reason number two. We know this because other passages in Scripture put these things together as complementary to one another. So I'm going to give you two examples, one that we've already seen today and one that's new for today. Philippians 1, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love, here's the love, may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Do you you see how he puts those together here? Love has to abound in knowledge. And so it is commendable, it is good to grow in our knowledge of Scripture and doctrine. Just don't do that without love. That's the first verse that we're going to look at. Verse number two is what we've already seen today, but we'll look at it again. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. It's not have knowledge or love, have discernment or love, speak the truth or love. It is both and. I'm going to speak the truth, but I'm going to do it in love. Now, think of it this way. Let's go back to our old jail illustration. Um, Imagine that we reverse the scenario. Imagine that the food from the old jail restaurant, the steak, comes to you, and it is on, you know, a gold platter, you know, and, and it's the finest presentation that you can ever imagine with, with being served. You've never been served this way in your entire life. And yet, the steak is bad. The steak is poison. It's not good. That is what love is like without sound doctrine. The point in the passage is not either make the food good or make the delivery good. It's make both good. Make the food good, make the presentation and the delivery good. Okay? Take that to the gospel. Take that to theology. Yes, have the sound doctrine. Have the good theology. Have the sacrifice. Make that good. But also make the presentation good. Don't be a jerk in your delivery of the gospel. Be, be loving in the way that you present the truth of God's word. Because people... It, it, if you go with the first old jail illustration, you throw the paper bag at someone, they're going to get up and leave. And it was a really good steak dinner. I mean, it, was really, it, it could have been really delicious. And this is, how we, this is presenting the gospel or presenting the truth without love. 
We're presenting the gospel, we're giving truth, we're sacrificing, and there's something really good about that and something that people really need, and yet they walk away because there's no love here. Don't make it either or, make it both and. The problem with the Corinthians was not in the things that they were doing right, the things they were doing wrong, namely living a loveless Christianity. And those of us here today, if we're going to apply this passage in front of us, those of us who are living a loveless Christianity need to repent. People who intentionally disregard, both errors can be made, okay? There is the error of having a loveless Christianity. You may be saying all the right things, but doing it without love. The other error is people who intentionally disregard biblical commands to grow in knowledge and claim, oh, all I need is love. Now, that's not really the error of the Corinthians today, but that can be made. They were making the opposite error. Both errors are errors. Both need to be repented of. And I have, in light of this, three points of application. Number one, repent of your loveless deeds. I don't know what that is for you specifically, individually, um, because there's a lot of different things that that could be. Um, But we are to repent of those things. Um, And if you have a hard time figuring out what that is, uh, your spouse could probably help you a lot. Um, Or your brother or your siblings would be very eager to help you put this list together. If you went up to your sibling and said, can you help me find out all the ways in which I am loveless? I guarantee they would sit down, pen and paper, and they'd be there concentrated for a very long time helping you with this. So there are ways to help jog your memory on these things, okay? Um, But we're called to to repent of those things. Number two, um, demonstrate your Christianity to unbelievers through your love. Um, Demonstrate your Christianity to unbelievers through your love. Now, again... This is not the full picture, but we're addressing the errors of this passage, okay? This, this is not... Um, there's, a, there's a lot of slogans that have crept their way into Christianity that need to be left by the wayside and forgotten, okay? And one of those statements is, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, Okay? Don't ever say that, please. You, you, know what that, you know what the sentiment is to that? In other words, demonstrate the gospel by your life. Yes, but words are necessary to preach the gospel, okay? So we're not falling into that trap here by saying only demonstrate your Christianity. Of course, share your Christianity verbally through words. But regarding this text... We are called to demonstrate your Christianity to unbelievers through your love. In other words, let the presentation, let the delivery be good, just like the meal is good. And then finally, to your faith, knowledge, sacrifice, etc. And we're looking at all the things in this passage. Add love. Don't have a loveless faith, a loveless knowledge, a loveless sacrifice. Add love to all of those 
things. Love is, by the way, as we saw at the beginning, both the inclination of the heart, the affections, and it is expressed through the will, through my commitment to other people. So if I love someone from the heart, it is going to motivate me to do things for that person. A loveless Christian is a hollow Christian. And so let's repent of our lack of love and walk out of here differently than when we came in for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel. Thank you for today, God, your mercy and your love for us that we struggle even to define in terms that we can understand adequately. We will be, of course, singing praises to you for your love demonstrated to us for all of eternity. And we will grow in our knowledge of and appreciation of your love. And that will motivate a deeper love of us toward you. Of course, we know scripture reminds us that we love because you first loved us. You initiated that love and that has caused us to reciprocate in that way. And so we thank you for that and ask that you'd help us to not be hollow, loveless Christians, but to fill our homes, our lives individually, to fill our community with Christian love, that we would sacrifice for the sake of others and that we would do it out of a heart that is inclined toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.